welcome to What Happened Here. I'm Hannah Allman Kennedy. I'm a writer and educator with a fascination for places, a point in time and space where nature, history, culture, and infrastructure collide. Join me each week as I look at an interesting, forgotten, or just plain weird place and ask, what happened here? Well, hello and welcome back to What Happened Here, the podcast where we tell the stories of interesting places and learn what they have to tell us. I'm Hannah Kennedy, and I am so excited to bring you today's podcast. It's a place that's very near and dear to my heart, the kind of place you can't stop learning and thinking about. Okay, I I guess all places are like that for me. That's why I started this podcast. Thank you so much to everyone so far who has listened and followed and liked and commented. Your support has been so exciting, and I'm glad you're enjoying um, learning about these places as much as I am. So today we are covering Canyon de Chez. It's a place in northeastern Arizona within the boundaries of what is commonly known as the Navajo Reservation, although I will be using the terms Navajo Nation or Navajo Land, which is what the people of this place call it. It is the home of the Navajo Native American people, or Diné, as they call themselves, one of the first nations of this region. I will be using both terms Navajo as well as Diné to refer to this group of people. So the sources for this episode, again, I kind of have a long list. Um, It's becoming a bit of a theme where I really go down a rabbit hole. So the sources are the National Park Service website, discovernavajo.com, firstpeople.us, and a variety of Wikipedia pages um, on Navajo Nation, Canyon de Chez, the Battle of Canyon de Chez, Fort Sumner, uh, the Long Walk of the Navajo, and the list of U.S. states and territories by area. So if you are interested in anything we talk about today, I recommend um, that you take a look and learn more about it for yourself because it's a very fascinating topic. Another thing I'll be kind of using as a source is my own experience visiting this particular place. It's um, a place I've been to several times. The Navajo Nation has been a topic of interest for me for many years. Um, As a teenager, I had the Um, opportunity to spend several weeks over several summers doing volunteer work in the Navajo Nation. Um, And so those memories are very important to me, very um, meaningful to me. And so while this personal experience that I have with this place and culture make it particularly meaningful, uh, this by no means is to say that I'm an expert on this topic. I'm not an expert on Navajo culture and Navajo history uh, for as much as I know, limited that it is, I still have yet to learn. Um, And so researching for today's episode gave me the opportunity to continue doing that, which is awesome. Um, But again, I don't want to say that just because I've been to this place or I have some experience in this place, um, that that means I know everything about it, because I certainly do not. Um, So in today's episode, along those lines, I will be highlighting some aspects of Navajo history, some background into the culture, to the legend around this place, Uh, but this will necessarily be simplified for the sake of time. And so I encourage you, again, to check out their sources in the show notes, as well as additional sources, books, um, you know, 
information, any information you can get your hands on is really fascinating. Check out your local library for stuff around um, Navajo history and culture. That's how I first started learning about it. It's really fascinating. Um, and, you know, I think it's just, I want to say all this, and I think it's important because, you know, as we know, as you can probably guess, the story of indigenous peoples in North America is a story of great injustice, of harm. Um, it's a very sobering and convicting thing to learn about. Um, but there's also a lot of hope in these stories. There's also great resilience and power and strength in them as well. So it's my hope to touch on them at least a little bit using my research, um, using my experience to kind of highlight a story that's not often told. Um, and then whatever, you know, to whatever extent you would like to learn more about that, I encourage you to. And if you are very knowledgeable about this and I make a mistake or I simplify something and you think I shouldn't have, awesome. Let me know. Um, connect with me on Instagram, whathappenedhere.pod, or uh, through email, whathappenedhere at uh, whathappenedherepod at gmail.com. I forget my email address. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, let me know. And I can kind of clarify that in a future Instagram post or in a future episode. Um, I'm happy to be corrected in that way. Um, so, all right, let's dive into our episode about Canyon de Chez in Arizona. If you drive five hours northeast of Phoenix, Arizona, you will encounter land that is, in short, awe-inspiring. Rugged mountain peaks, dramatic valleys, windswept sculpted canyons, swirling red rocks, saguaro and prickly pear and juniper, and mesas rising high over the endless tufted land under endless blue sky. Only a few miles from the town of Chinle in the northeastern corner of Arizona, the land cracks into a deep canyon, falling hundreds of feet down into a placid, fertile forest surrounded by sheer cliff faces of red rock. This is Canyon de Chez, an 83,000-acre, 26-mile-long valley with cliffs ranging from 30 to 1,000 feet deep. This is a place that has been lived in continuously for nearly 5,000 years. The name Canyon de Chez comes from a Spanish butcherization, I think I made that word up, of the Navajo word tseya, which literally means inside the rock and is used to refer to canyons. When the Spanish word was translated to English, we named it Deche and for some reason chose a really French spelling for it. This canyon features the White House ruins, the remnants of ancient cliff dwellings, as well as Spider Rock, a tall formation towering into the sky. According to Navajo legend, Spider Rock is the home of Spider Woman, one of the most important deities in Navajo lore. The story goes that at the creation of this world, monsters and terrifying creatures made the world a deadly and dangerous place. And so, out of love for the people, Spider Woman equipped them with the wisdom and power to fight off the monsters and make the world a safe place to live. In these and other legends, Spider Woman is a figure of rescue, of benevolence and mercy. Spider Woman is also a cautionary tale. Historically, Diné children have been cautioned to be good or else Spider Woman will scoop them up in her web, bring them to the top of Spider Rock and eat them. Clearly the use of legend to elicit good behavior from children is nothing new. 
Canyon de Chelly is unique in that it is both a national monument and a residential area. It is managed by the National Park Service, but it is owned by the Navajo Nation. Tourists can enjoy the nature and outdoor recreation of its hiking trails and horseback tours, but Navajo families also live here, farming and raising animals on the canyon floor. So what happened here? Obviously, the history of the Navajo people stretches back far longer than that of the United States of America, but I'm going to start our story in the 1860s, just before the American Civil War. While the North and South were squabbling over whether it was okay to enslave people or not, spoiler, it isn't, the U.S. government was waging another war, one for the control of the Wild West. This westward expansion was the result of a philosophy called Manifest Destiny. The idea that white Europeans, and as a result, white Americans, were on a mission from God to conquer the continent and spread Western culture and values to the quote, uncivilized people who were already living here. Of course, this typically meant using brute force, violence, and manipulation to force indigenous peoples into being occupied by U.S. forces. At this time, the Navajo people were the largest indigenous nation in the U.S., and the U.S. government wanted to change that. It was decided that it would be best for everyone, the U.S. government, if the Navajo were moved from their ancestral lands to a reservation called Bosque Redondo, near Fort Sumner in New Mexico, about 400 miles away. There, they would be contained and forced to learn and practice Western farming methods. And Colonel Christopher H. Carson, also known as Kit Carson, was tasked with forcibly removing the Navajo to Bosque Redondo. Carson had a scorched-earth policy when it came to the native peoples. While he often stopped short of outright massacre, he was no stranger to violence. At his command, native homes and farms were destroyed, supplies and food were stolen, and livestock was killed or confiscated, as Carson sought to destroy the livelihoods of the native people, leaving them no choice but to surrender and relocate to Bosque Redondo. By 1863, however, Carson had only succeeded in sending 200 people to Bosque Redondo. So he was ordered by his commanding officer to attack Canyon de Chey, where prominent Navajo leaders, including the chief Manuelito and Barbancito, were taking refuge for the winter with their people. These men had been a thorn in the U.S. Army's side for several years. They had stirred up the Navajo people against American oppression, and they had attacked and nearly taken Fort Defiance from the U.S. Army in retaliation for genocidal crimes on the part of the U.S. government. Despite treaties between the U.S. and the Navajo, the U.S. Army still attacked important Navajo leaders during peace talks, allowed Navajo people to be enslaved, allowed their livestock to be stolen and killed, took away two of their four sacred mountains, and took ownership of a third of the Navajo land at the time. This understandably led to conflict, and over several years, Navajo forces, some led by Manuelito and Barbancito, continually raided and engaged in conflict with U.S. Army forces. But now, in 1863, the Civil War made things all the more crucial. The U.S. Army was intent on settling the conflict between it and the Navajo, desiring to secure Navajo loyalty before the Confederate Army could do so. This is something we often don't think about, but soldiers from the Confederate States were also scouring the Wild West during the Civil War, as the South tried to gain an advantage by securing native land for itself. 
So the U.S. Army told the Navajo that if they simply surrendered and came to the Bosque Redondo Reservation, they would be protected and safe from the Confederacy and from other tribes which were often warring with the Navajo. If, however, the Navajo refused to surrender to the U.S., they would be treated as enemies. This, by the way, is a simply flawless plan for making people loyal to you. How to win friends and influence people? Threaten them. The American way. Anyway, I digress. With just under 400 soldiers at his command, Colonel Carson entered Canyon de Chez, hoping to engage the Navajos hidden there in battle. While the battle itself was not a major fight, it was still devastating to the Navajo, for as Carson advanced through the canyon, he destroyed everything in his path, essentially cutting the people off from everything they would need to survive the winter. In what is now known as the Battle of Canyon de Chez, 23 Navajo people were killed, 200 sheep were confiscated, and multiple homes, camps, and farms were destroyed. In desperation, the Navajo surrendered, in what is the largest surrender of indigenous people in American history. Sources differ on the exact number, but somewhere between eight to 10,000 Navajo men, women, and children were exiled from their homeland and forced by the U.S. Army to walk on foot through the desert to Bosque Redondo. Over the next few years, over 50 of these forced migrations were made, the first of these occurring in 1864. The 400-mile journey took 18 days, which is an average pace of 22 miles a day, and was devastating to the captured Navajo people. This event is called the Long Walk of the Navajo and is remembered by the people as a moment of sorrow and lament in their history. Driven at such a harsh pace by the U.S. Army without access to aid or supplies, at least 200 people died during the Long Walk. The accounts of this are devastating, and while I won't go into detail here, the utter brutality of this event is incredibly upsetting. Many of the people were already weak and starving when the walk began. Some were not properly clothed. No one was told where they were going, or how long the journey would take, and all were met with cruelty from the U.S. soldiers marching them to Bosque Redondo. This wasn't just nicely, easily moving people from one place to another. This was genocide. At the Bosque Redondo Reservation, nearly 10,000 people were crowded into a 40 square mile space. Bosque Redondo was essentially a work camp. Native people, mostly Navajo, with some Mescalero Apache people, were forced to live and work on this crowded farm, where necessities like clean water and firewood were limited and food was rotten or scarce. The U.S. government, in designing this project, had not accounted for the fact that the Navajo and Mescalero Apache had a historical antagonism with each other, and so there was a conflict between these two groups within the camp. Members of the reservation were often raided by other indigenous tribes and were given no protection from the U.S. Army when they were, even though one of the quote-unquote selling points of the U.S. Army bringing the Navajo to Bosque Redondo was that they would be protected. Furthermore, the crops supported by the Western farming methods that the U.S. government wanted so badly to instill in these indigenous people often failed due to bad weather or mismanagement. All in all, the government spent several million dollars on this project to no end. The experiment had failed. And so in 1868, four years after being first exiled from their homeland, 
the Navajo were permitted to leave Bosque Redondo and return home. The U.S. government gave back 3.5 million acres of land within the Navajo's four sacred mountains, which function as the boundary of their traditional homeland. In June of 1868, the Navajo embarked on another long walk, this time one of their own choosing to return home. The group of people walking together was so large that it stretched 10 miles in length. This devastating and traumatic experience impacts the collective memory of the Navajo people to this day. However, it was also a turning point for greater unity and strength within the nation. After the return home, they continued to advocate for their tribe and homeland. While the history of the Navajo people after 1868 is definitely still tumultuous and complex, it was not a completely happy ending after that, they have been, fortunately, able to maintain a vibrant cultural identity ever since then. Today, the Navajo Nation covers over 17 million acres, making it larger than 10 states. Navajo land includes portions of Arizona, Utah, and New Mexico. Over 150,000 people make their home here, out of approximately 330,000 total tribal members. It has its own tribal government, which is based in the town of Window Rock, Arizona. And Canyon de Chais stands as a memorial to all of these events. The site was given national monument status in 1931 and has ties to the National Park Service, but it is entirely owned and controlled by the Navajo Nation making it a unique example of cooperation between the U.S. government and a native tribe. Around 40 Navajo families call the canyon home, and it is a vibrant place for tourism, hiking, horseback riding, and recreation. It was placed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1970. Many words come to mind when one visits Canyon de Chez. It is awe-inspiring, dramatic, rugged, and beautiful. It is a sacred space, a place where peace now reigns after decades of conflict. The story of justice for indigenous people in the U.S. is definitely not over, and in so many ways, we still have so much work to do. But places like this cause us to pause, to hope, to remember, and to work toward the good of those who call this place home. So that's what happened in Canyon de Chez. So that is our episode for this week. Thank you to everyone so much for listening. Um, please rate and review on whatever platform you're listening on. That will really help um, as I continue to make these episodes. Um, and, you know, let me know. Give me some feedback on what you thought about this episode, if you were familiar with this place before or not. Um, also connect with me on Instagram, whathappenedhere.pod. Um, or through email, whathappenedherepod at gmail.com. Um, and let me know what place you think we should cover next. I have a list of places I want to cover, but I'd love to hear from you um, and have, you know, you represented in um, the places that we talk about. So have a great week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I will see you next time. What Happened Here is written by me, Hannah Almond Kennedy. Please subscribe and leave a review if you enjoyed today's episode. You can find What Happened Here wherever you get your podcasts. For more information on our featured places, follow the pod on Instagram at whathappenedhere.pod 
You can also find me online at hannahakwrites.com, where I share my recent writings and projects. I'm currently promoting my newest book, And It All Came Tumbling Down, a novel set among the oil ghost towns of Venango County, Pennsylvania. Check out my website to learn more.